My name is Todd Searle. I'm obsessed with watches. I pay attention to them everywhere I see them. I'm specifically focused on independent watchmaking, a niche world within the watchmaking sphere inhabited by some of the most talented watchmakers and most interesting people and interesting stories from around the watch world. On Forward Momentum, we'll talk about watches, cars, the luxury goods market, and of course, a little bit of Formula One. Join me as I interview the journalists, retailers, and collectors who support these independent brands. And of course, we will certainly hear from the watchmakers themselves. Welcome back to Forward Momentum. What's going on, watch fans? Welcome back to Forward Momentum. I'm your host, Todd Searle. I'm here with a guest today who I met at Geneva Watch Days, but I have long wanted to meet. He is an incredible watchmaker who is very, very involved in the deeply technical sides of watchmaking. He is one of my watchmaking heroes, and I am very pleased to welcome Stephen McDonald to Forward Momentum. Stephen, how are you? I'm very well, Todd. Thank you for the very kind, <laughs> generous introduction. That's very exciting. I hope I can live up to that. <laughs> I, I know you can, and um, I know that I'm really excited to speak with you today because you, uh, as as people might guess from your name and your accent, are not Swiss or French, so you end up being a bit of an anomaly in the uh, in the watch industry. I'd love to hear how you got started in watches and what it was like going to Wostep and what initially drew you into watchmaking. Well, now there's a story, huh? Uh, it's true. So yeah, I'm not from I'm not Swiss at all. I'm from I'm from Northern Ireland. I'm from Belfast. So. I suppose the thing is that I, I uh, people sometimes ask me, and it sounds it's a, it's a pretentious answer. It sounds like a pretentious answer to say that I never chose watchmaking. It's like it feels like watchmaking chose me. You know, I was totally obsessed with it from the, from the age of about four or five years old. You know, I never sought it out. I never. There's nobody else involved in my family. There's no other history here, and and, and in terms of me and my family and people that I knew. Uh, and the thing as well about Northern Ireland is like it, it's a country where there's no culture of watchmaking whatsoever. It's not known. You'd never consider as a career. You know, the difference is in, in, in Switzerland, you're surrounded by the whole industry. You're surrounded by the culture. You can't avoid it. Here, that's unknown. So a person growing up here would never think that they would, you know, become a watchmaker. So it's something I was always intensely interested in as a small child. I was given a clock by my grandfather, which he dug up in his attic when I was about I was about four years old, five years old. He, he gave me this clock, and I just thought it was the most wonderful thing I had ever seen. I was just obsessed with it, you know. And and uh, it was broken, and you know, after some with some help from a local, very a, a sort of semi-retired watchmaker, watch repairer, this guy was able to give me the parts. He didn't repair the clock; he gave me the parts the clock needed, and he gave me some tools. And I was able eventually to get this thing working when I was about eight, and. Uh, I mean, that was, that was my sort of, you know, that was my sort of uh, road to Damascus moment, on the, on the road to Damascus moment, you know, it was, it, that's the red line in my life was that clock, getting that clock running. And I think from then on, there was, there was no way that I could, uh, couldn't avoid it. But as I say, there was still no culture of that here. And I never thought I'm going to, now I'm going to become a watchmaker or some work in horology. I just thought this is an interest, an intense interest, which I have privately, which I will keep as my interest on. That'll always be something I'm doing, you know, myself. But I never thought of it as a career until until much later, you know. So it, it, it's a sort of a circuitous path. I grew up and I thought, okay, well, 
you know, I should, you know, I went to university and I, I have a degree in theology, which has got nothing to do with anything really at all. I'm not religious, but I'm just fascinated by all that sort of stuff. Um, but it was only after doing that that I, you know, this, this, this watch and clock thing, it just wouldn't go away. It, you know, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't shake it off, you know. And, and after that, it was only after I had been to university and come back, uh, that I, Started to real. I started to repair all these clocks for these local, you know, uh, antique dealers and jewelers and stuff. And then this word "wasp" kept coming up in people's conversations. I started hearing about this mythical wasp thing, you know. And I, I realized maybe this is something I could, I could try for, you know. Little me from Northern Ireland. And um, I suppose, you know, to cut a long story very short, you know, I did apply and I got in. And uh, and that was the first time I'd ever had that. Going to Wallstep was the first time I had any formal training at all in any kind of horology, you know, so that was January 2001. And I went there to do the six-month refresher course, or not even six, five-month refresher course. And then I was going to do that and come home again. That was grand. And then I ended up staying in Switzerland for 13 and a half years by accident. <laughs> and and just to uh, refresh people who are listening, WOSTEP is the Watchmakers of Switzerland training and education program. It's different tiers, right? So like you come in and you could do the basic course or the refresher, and then there are different technical courses as you go. That's right. Yeah, exactly. So the course I did was the refresher course, it's, which is a course, it's a really good course, you know, because people come from people who are watchmaking in all sorts of different countries. They, they work in different levels, you know, so somebody might have grown up and maybe they work, maybe worked with their dad or been taught by their dad, or somebody might have gone to a watchmaking school in a different country, or somebody might have taught themselves and sort of started a business, or, you know, uh, so you have all these different things going on. And uh, the idea of the refresher courses is it brings all these dis- different people who have got previous experience, but to differing levels, brings them all together and, 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 and sort of puts them all at a single level. You know, so whenever you graduate from that course, it means that everybody knows what that stands for. So everybody can do all these things up to that refresher course type level. Yeah. You know, so it's a, it's, a, it's really, good. it's not a full training course. It's for people who have previous experience because I had already worked and, you know, I've been playing around with, you know, I've been work, playing with clocks and watches for years, you know, so I, it wouldn't have been appropriate for me to start with a full training course, which is, which is a different course, which runs for more like two years, which really starts from zero. There wouldn't have been any point in me doing that. So the refresher course was the way in. But as a result, I thought I would just do this refresher course and then go back to Belfast and, you know, continue tootling around. But I I stayed and, you know, my path took a, my life took a, took a path I hadn't at all foreseen. It's strange. Yeah. And so when you, when you stayed in Switzerland, you got sort of much more into the deeply technical side of watchmaking. How did you progress from that refresher course into the the deeper and deeper technical levels of watchmaking? The first couple of years were the first like the learning curve was like vertical. I always say that you know it was it was it was unbelievable. It was the most intense. The first two years, the most intense two years ever. I mean, it was wonderful, really. You know, I, I sort of compared it to like you know like like Harry Potter going to Hogwarts. You know, yeah. suddenly you're in a place where everything you know. It all made sense. My whole life suddenly made sense. I was finally in the place where I was supposed to be, although I hadn't seen it like that until I got there. I didn't realize it really until I got there. All the bits of the puzzle all just fell into place. And here I was in this place where I'm supposed to be. Turns out I seem to be quite good at it, you know, and it was it was the most wonderful, incredible. I feel very fortunate to have had that experience. I think that very few people get a chance to live any part of their life to that level of sort of white hot intensity. And that's really how it felt. 
you know. But, but so you're right. Yeah, I I was initially I was always drawn to the really technical side of things. You know, it's what really interested me. I'd always been mad about, as I say, not just clocks, but all sorts of engines, gearboxes. You know, gearboxes especially really really like gearboxes, and um, I'd always been mad about this sort of stuff. So as soon as I got there, yeah, I was, I was really interested in going further and further and further and further with that. You know, so I yeah. did the refresher course and then I was that proposed that I should stay on and become an instructor. That was how I ended up actually staying, you know, and uh, I, I did that. So I became like, I, I became a good line as assistant for sort of a year. And then he taught, I was his student on the, the restoration and communications course. That was in the second half of 2002. And, um, you know, the more I went in the technical side, the more I wanted to go even further and even further in the technical side, you know. So I was, I was particularly drawn. I never wanted to just work in after sales service or anything like that. I wanted to really go as far as I possibly could with the technical stuff. It just, it just absolutely enthralled me. You know, I was just completely consumed by this, this devouring interest, which just the more I, the more I got into it, the more I was interested in getting more into it. So it's a kind of a, it's like a vicious circle of <laughs> insanity. <laughs> Absolutely. <You know? laughs> yeah. So I have a question. Were, as a kid, were you playing with like gearboxes and cars and bikes and other, you know, you, you uh, talked about the clock that your grandfather gave you. Were you working on other mechanical objects as a kid? It was mostly clocks. I, it's, uh, but yeah, also, also, also um, bicycles and steam engines. I obsessed with steam engines. You know, uh, it was just, and again, one of my lifelong huge interests is steam engines. And the, the amount of beauty, you see, it's all about beauty, Todd. There's so much beauty in these things. You know, so as a kid, I was like, uh, it's funny, actually, I, <laughs> I was at my mom's, at my mom's house a couple of weeks ago. From my primary school, my primary school was a little school here in Northern Ireland, and they did this annual sort of school magazine, you know, and all the kids would do like a wee contribution and they'd write a wee something and then you get your thing put in the school magazine. So I knew these were in the attic and I'd been meaning to dig, dig them out for years and years. I dug them out a couple of weeks ago and there's this, there's this one one magazine uh, from, let me see, it's 1985. So in 1985, I'm 10 and there's a whole, a whole page long article, which I wrote and it's called An Unusual Hobby. And it's a whole page about me and my interest in clocks and all the clocks that I have. You know, because I was sort of endlessly buying clocks from antique markets cheaply and taking them apart, repairing them and repairing clocks for my teachers. And, you know, and when I was only a kid, I was only 10 years old at this point, you know. And I, I hadn't looked at this, hadn't seen this article in, I don't know, 20, 30 years. It was just hidden in the attic, you know, and I dug this little magazine. And it was really funny to see it. It reminded me how sort of strong my interest was from such a young age. You know, as I say, I never made a decision, oh, maybe I'd quite like to be a watchmaker. It was something which was, uh, you know, it's kind of from, I don't know, I was pre-programmed from before birth or something. I don't I don't know. I can't explain that, but it's not. It was never something which I, one day thought, well, that might be an interesting career. It was like, you know, it, it's like, it's like oxygen, you, you know, it's a, it's a, you're not even conscious of, seeking out it's just i was all, i always had this this interest you know so yeah it was mostly clocks but also as i say steam engines as well i was hugely interested in steam engines and steam trains and how those things work but always in the in the sort of the 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 the, the, ref, the really refined side of how those things work you know not the brutal sort of ones made from pig, pig iron right at the start i love the sort of whenever those technologies were sort of perfected in the early 20th century that's the that's the era that i'm really interested in in terms of that yeah. sort of technology, you know. Amazing. 
That's that's awesome. I would love to see that article if you're willing to share. Just because oh, I, 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 like, <laughs> it's it's like yeah. you don't. I, I guess you don't often meet people or it's rare to meet people who just kind of were called to something and have been into it. And I'm always fascinated by people who are just like, this was just something that happened and you were just in it from the very beginning. And from a collector side and from a watch enthusiast side, I am so grateful that you are in this because you have created some amazing, amazing movements in your time. And I know there's a lot of stuff that we can't talk about or that we'll probably never really know about. But I know that there is some stuff that we can we can talk about. And I'd love to kind of talk about from Wostep and your time with Kari to meeting Max and working with MBNF and how that relationship kind of developed. Well, yeah, so I was at Wostep until I was teaching. So I be, yeah, I became I stayed on to become an instructor and I did become an instructor. So then I was teaching sort of 2003, four, five, six, and I left Wostep mid mid 2006, 2007, around then, and I became independent, you know. So uh, the, the teaching was cool. I liked it. I really liked working with the students. That was really interesting. But I was never I was never born to be a teacher. I think it was just, you know, my my first thing was always watchmaking. So I was, I was a watchmaker. I was a watchmaker who happened to be teaching for a while as opposed to a teacher who was teaching watchmaking. Teaching was never my first love, you know. So I did it for a while. It was cool. And then I left, became independent. And, um, you know, watchmaking's a small world. I, I lived in Neuchâtel. Neuchâtel's where Wallstep is, so that's where I've been living from the beginning of 2001. And, uh, you know, I quickly became friends with lots of people in the watch industry around around there, you know. And um, one of those is my dear pal, Stephen McGonagall, who's a, he's a very well-known independent fellow, you know. He was, he was just here staying with me last weekend, actually. And... Um, you know, through, through Stephen's very well connected and Stephen had worked in the industry quite a lot before then, before I got to know him. So he was well connected. He put me in touch with, you know, people like Peter Speak, you know, so I became very friendly with Peter and uh, Peter and I got on well. And Peter had me, once I became independent, Peter had me do all sorts of like assembling. I was doing tourbillons for him and perpetual calendars and bits and pieces, you know. So it was really through Peter that I, 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 um, I started to design stuff because at that point I wasn't a designer. You see, I was working all that all that time. I'd work, been working for after Wastep. I'd been even before during Wastep. I'd been sort of moonlighting, you know, doing like um, stuff for Christoph Clara. I was doing like tourbillons and mineral repeaters and all those sort of assemblies, you know, chronograms. Those complicated watches. I'd be doing that a bit on the side, you know, while I was at Wastep the last couple of years to make extra money so that I could start to buy all the equipment and machinery, which is sitting beside me just out of shop. I was just going to yeah. ask about that. About how, So we'll come back to how you set up your workshop in uh, Belfast because I'm, I'm endlessly curious how you got everything safely from Switzerland to your workshop. I know. I'm amazed as well. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So that was all I'd been doing that. So I'd been working on all these complicated watches and then with Peter, I was doing assembly and, you know, um, putting kits together and stuff, but I'd never designed anything. And P it was really Peter. Peter is Peter for me is really an important guy in the story because it was Peter who, it was Peter who pushed me to start to design something. Peter was the guy who, I said before he saw something. About, he saw something about me. I didn't. I wasn't. I didn't know what he saw at that point at all. But he said, "You've got to start designing." And it was him who encouraged me to learn CAD. And CAD's a very important step in this whole watch design business, you know. So 
I, I did that. I stopped work completely because I was just by myself. I stopped everything else. And I just learned CAD for three months. So I took like, you know, unpaid. And, uh, and from there, then I was able to start to, to take my very first sort of baby steps in terms of designing stuff. So I designed some mechanisms for Peter. Uh, we did a couple of two or three. We sort of um, not complete watches, but like uh, we sort of unique pieces with uh, with modules. So I designed and I designed and completely made the whole module, made all the components, even the screws, the whole thing, top to bottom, did all the finishing, all the decoration, made these be that was like a wee jumping R thing and we this thing with three sets of hands. I can show you some pictures if you're curious. Yeah, that would be. So amazing. I did. I did all these for did all these for Peter, and then um, well, then Peter was always he was involved in the very first. Horological machine number one, which uh, he was one of the friends on that watch, you know. So uh, actually, it was through so it was through Peter then that I, I uh, got involved with with Max because Max had problems with the first watch. Peter was one of the friends on it, so whenever it came to sorting out the problems, um, Peter, I was one of the people that Peter called. So it was from there that I met Max, and I suppose there again we we got on, and you know we, we remained in contact, I suppose, to some extent. So. But it begins like that. So, I, but was, at that point, I have to understand. At that point, I wasn't a watch designer. I was just, I was a watchmaker. My whole background was in the, in the, uh, you know, with the machines at the bench, the actual watchmaking side of stuff. I was a watchmaker who was starting to take his first tentative steps towards designing things. Yeah, absolutely. But then at that point, I met Max and, and I got involved in in his project. But in his project again, I wasn't. Um, I did, you know, it, it, I, did, I had nothing to do with the design of that watch. I was involved purely in solving the technical problems and getting the first watches together because Max had had problems with the company he was he was doing it with, and the thing hadn't been prototyped, and there was lots of lots of bits weren't working properly, and lots of bits were missing, and so on. So there's a few of us watchmakers who, who Peter assembled, who we sort of uh, we sort of uh, sorted all that out for Max. Yeah. Yeah. And w- was that sort of like, I, I know that there's a, there's a long story there about there were some components there, there were pieces missing, there were no actual technical plans for this. Was that the kind of puzzle that you like just dove into and loved attacking, trying to figure it out? Yeah, I really loved it. Yeah. I thought it was brilliant. That was really <laughs> exactly the sort of thing I was interested in, you know, and I, I was very, I was really keen to get it done and get it working and see what it looked like. You know, I thought it was, it was a, Really interesting puzzle. I like the way that it was, um, you know, as you, exactly as you say, it wasn't, it, it didn't just, you didn't just, you know, put all the bits together and it all worked. It, it involved a challenge and it involved, you know, machining all sorts of stuff and modifying parts and working out what, what goes where and what was wrong. And, okay, this bit doesn't work properly. So you, how are we going to redesign that? So it was, it was a, yeah, it was a really interesting, interesting challenge. Yeah. And I was, I, I was, I was, um, I enjoy getting my teeth into it, you know. And I suppose, yeah, I suppose Max saw that, but me, he saw that I, I sort of, I, I just, you know, I was quite keen on stuff like that. And then again, the te- it's all, you know, it's the same thing. Top the technical side, I really like the technical side, getting into the technical side of it. So, so I suppose that's that's where that that's where that, um, that that we had a common interest, I suppose, with Max, and that he saw that I was somebody who liked that sort of, you know, uh, sadistic <laughs> approach to things. <laughs> and then you've learned cad you've built some modules you've done some some designs when did you start really thinking about sort of complications that you liked but that you thought needed a complete rethink i'm thinking for example the legacy machine perpetual uh with your perpetual calendar design that is completely unique to everything else that has been made 
to this point in time. Okay. Well, yeah, well, what happened? What, uh, it's a ridiculous story, really. What happened was that um, I was working on something else. I was working on like a, a thing through Peter. We, we were working on like a large project and there was like a, an investor involved in that project. And I'd been at that for quite a long time. And then un, unbeknownst to either of us, I suppose really the investor just, he, he, I don't know, he reorganized his portfolio and decided he didn't want to be involved in this project anymore. And he didn't give us any warning. So suddenly there was no... I basically had no income, just like that, bang. And uh, so Peter, so we got, Peter and I had a sort of emergency meeting. We said, right, what are we going to do? You know, because I had no income. And uh, Peter said, okay, well, we've, I, one, of the, one of the little mechanisms I had come up with in that watch, that was quite an interesting watch, but it, unfortunately it never saw the light of day. But one of the things I'd come up with for that watch, Peter said, okay, let's take that. We'll, we'll make that into a little mini project. We'll make that, we'll do a module. On bit, we'll take an existing base movement, we'll do a new module featuring this mechanism. And this is this thing I mentioned, which is good. It's got three sets of R-minute hands, which all move exactly in sync. So the, the, just to explain very quickly, normally with any R-minute hands, you'll have, if you could have set the time, you'll have play in the teeth. There's always play in the gears. That means that if, you've got, you, know, if, you, turn the, if you turn the crown to rotate the hands clockwise and then you change direction with the crown, there'll be a lag between when you change the direction and when the hands actually start to move. And that's because all the gear, all the play in the gears has to be taken up in one direction, then in the other. So it doesn't matter too much if you've only got one set of arm and hands. But if you've got three sets, you'll see that they'll all respond at different times, which would look terrible. So what this mechanism does is it's effectively a, a, a system to eliminate all the play from the gear trains. So each of the gear trains for each set of hands is double. There's a, there's a top set and a bottom set, and, a, and, and they're linked by a little spring. So the spring creates an artificial tension in the gear trends, which in means the that there's, never, there's absolutely no lag between whenever you, how you rotate the crown and how the, the, the hands all respond absolutely instantaneously, crisply. So that's what it does. And uh, so I'm, I, I, in six weeks, I designed the module, designed all the components, um, made the whole thing from scratch in the workshop, worked at like half, ten, half past 10 at night, every night. And this was just before Basel. And then it was finished like two days before Basel. Peter came and took it, and uh, and the idea was he was going to sell it, you know, so we had some cash. And then I said to him, look, if you're going to go, do me one favor, please show it to Max and tell him I did it. And so Peter stuck it in his pocket and away he went. And he did show it to Max, and I think Max was suitably impressed. And, uh, you know, that was sort of, I, I sort of wanted this as a sort of calling card, you know, to say to Max, you know, well, I, this is what I'm doing now. I, I sort of thought, well, maybe I could, maybe I might have a punt and ask Max if he'd like to do something or he'd like me to do something. You know, I just didn't have the nerve to ask by myself. So I kind of sent Peter off, Peter, this watch, and I sort of wanted the watch to do the talking and Peter just sort of say something nice about me. So, I mean, they did, that happened. Max seemed to like the watch. And then not long after Basel, I remember it was very hot and sunny that, that, that year. And not long after Basel, we had a meeting with MBNF and they, for reasons I've never really understood, seemed interested in me designing some sort of a thing, project, whatever you want to call it, for them. Crazy. So, yes, yeah, so the perpetual calendar, that became the perpetual calendar. Uh, what you have to understand is that I, I had never, at this point, I had never designed even a complete movement. You know, I, I designed a handful of modules and, uh, you know, little, little mini projects based on base movements, existing base movements. I'd never designed a complete watch let alone a highly, highly complicated watch, you know. So uh, so in terms of MBNF, 
they were brilliant because they took a total and utter punt on me. You know, I was completely unknown and untried and unproven that I could do this. You know, they had no idea that I could pull it off. So again, I suppose back to the original HM1 and the problems there, maybe Max working with me then, he, he seemed to see that maybe I was the sort of person who could see this through. But uh, I, I had no I had no credentials really or, or um, proven track record to use that horrible phrase. In movement design, you know, they, they just, they had a go. And I explained to them along the way, I just had had this idea about a perpetual calendar. So the answer to your question is, I, I worked on a perpetual calendar for the very first time in the, uh, on the, on the restoration course in Wastep, you know, and I remember, uh, getting this watch and, you know, this pocket watch and like this, you know, this is so exciting, this mythical perpetual calendar mechanism, you know, it's so exciting, you know. And then I remember getting, you know, taking it all apart and getting into it. And I just remember opening it for the first time and taking the dial off and thinking, what? You know, is this really, is this it? That's the, that's the thought I had. Is this it? Is this really, you know, it seems so cumbersome and so clunky and so like this great big lever and all the, nothing stays in place properly. And if you do this and that with the correctors, then you can break these teeth and you can damage this. And, and I, I just, I, I was, I was sort of dismayed that it was this, sort of unevolved as it was. That was my very first impression when I worked on one for the very first time. Like, it's a beautiful thing, but it's it's sort of very, um, there's a, there seems a great deal of scope for development that, you know, it, it just hasn't really happened. So it was right from Wastep that I felt perpetual calendar, surely, surely we can do better. And I had this idea just knocking around in the back of my head. And so whenever I went to Geneva and I saw MB, saw Max and Sarah for the first time after Basel, whenever they said, let's maybe do something, I didn't have any watch to show them or any sketches or any like clear idea. All I had was this idea in the back of my head that it's, it's totally and utterly illogical that perpetual calendars work. All perpetual calendars work on the basis of 31, 31 being the longest month. And we have a wheel. The conventional perpetual calendar has got a wheel with 31 teeth. That's fine for th- months with 31 days. But for all the other months, at the end of the month, you have to skip out the days that you don't want. So for September and so on, you have to skip over these days. So that means that as the, uh, between, you know, between sort of 10 a.m. and 2 a.m. during the, 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 the period whenever the, the calendar is jumping from the end of the old month to the beginning of the new month, there will be a time when your watch reads the 31st of September. It'll read that for like 20 minutes or half an hour, or it'll read the 29th of, you know, the 30th of February. This kind of crap. And I just thought... You know, it's so logical that rather than base it on 31, which only some months have 31 days, base the calendar on 28 because every month in the year has got at least 28 days. Then add in the extra days to each month as and when you require them. So you always have exactly the right number of days in the month. This seems so logical to me, but I haven't fleshed the idea out. I just, it was really a sketch in the back of my head. And I went to MBNF in Geneva and my total pitch was more or less what I've just told you. I didn't, I did, even at that point, I didn't even really know how it worked. I had this idea for this wheel, this multi-layered wheel with moving sectors, which is what became the mechanical processor, but I hadn't designed any of it. I hadn't fleshed any of the geometry out. It was just literally ideas. And on the, on the strength of that, they said, <laughs> instead of telling me to leave and <laughs> never coming back, they said, <laughs> okay, let's do it. So. Okay, so you've you've got this idea, you have the concept, you have it sketched out in your head. What is your creative process like from this idea in the back of your head to bringing this to reality? Because it, it, I think one thing I'd like people to understand about watchmaking is it's not a short process. 
it's not uh, a quick and easy um, sort of like, oh, okay, I have this idea. I sketch it out in CAD. I test it. It works. Yay. Let's put this into production. It's a, it's a long process with much more complicated steps than I've just broken it down. But I'd love to hear how your creative process sort of works, you know, broadly or, or with this particular, with the LMP as a particular, particular example, like you have the idea of what happens next. Uh, the idea is there. The idea popped into my head years before, whenever I, after I'd been playing around with the, the, was, the watches and was up, you know, the idea was just there, but the 28, but that's all it really was. 28. And what can you do with this 28? And I, and I suppose I thought about it a lot. And the idea of the moving sectors inside the multi-layered wheel seemed interesting, but again, I didn't really know if this would work. So with watchmaking, I, I, I developed it. Usually what happens with the, with the, it was the same with the last projects I've done as well. I usually will find that before I actually, before I really put pen to paper properly, before I actually start to design anything, that I could show you anything in CAD or any sketches, like actual sketches of stuff. I just, I think about it a lot. You know, I think about, like, it was the same with the, with the chronograph, with the sequential chronograph. I thought, I thought about the chronograph on and off for probably about two years. Just in my head, you know, and I had a lot, I'd mapped out some of how it's all going to work in my head, but I hadn't written, there was nothing to show, you know. So that process had already been going on in the back of my head, I suppose, for a couple of years. And so I had some feeling for this multi layered wheel that seemed to be the key tool, you know. But I hadn't, I, when I went to see Max and Sarah's in Geneva, I'd no, I had nothing to show them except I just had an explanation, you know. But I think when it's only whenever, okay, so once. I had some notion of what I was aiming for, this multi-layered wheel. That was the key to it. So as soon as they said, okay, let's do it, and then I began actually to work on it, uh, it really began with, uh, there's always a central point in the project. The central point is like the, if you like, it's the it's the most dangerous and difficult part of the whole thing. You, you begin there and everything, and then you sort of move outwards from that, you know. So in the in the case of the professional calendar, the, the most difficult and dangerous bit, the heart of the whole mechanism is that multi-layered wheel and how the levers and the different the, the different the different parts of the main section of the calendar, how they interface with that wheel. So I started with the calendar, and in particular, I started with the the the, the, the wheel and the operating lever and the lever which communicates with the month count down at the bottom, down towards six o'clock. Those are the most highly constrained and problematic elements of the entire watch. There's no point in starting with the basic movement or the power reserve mechanism. Any of those, you know, the balance even, that, that's all, that all follows much later. You start with the most, the bit which is most likely to go wrong. Effectively, I'm always looking in these projects for something which, you know, there's always, this is what I find with these things as well, Todd, there's, there's very often things lurking in an element of the mechanism which I haven't spotted or haven't thought of. And, and any of these things could potentially knock over the entire house of cards. And what I mean is that there could be something lurking. There could be an Achilles heel or a weakness or a, a limitation somewhere in the mechanism that I haven't spotted. And it could be that that thing, if it turns out to be insoluble, it could derail the entire project. It could kill the project stone dead. I'm always looking for that thing that I haven't thought of. And in both the perpetual calendar and in the, in the sequential chronograph, there have been episodes exactly like that which fortunately were solved in the end, but the road to solving was incredibly difficult and stressful. Uh, and, and it's really, it's dealing with those things, which exactly to come back to your question, it's in dealing with those things that, that takes up a huge amount of the development time. Because 
whenever you start flesh the idea out, you start to actually design the CAD and design, you really you start with the geometry. The first thing I do is the geometry. I'll spend with something like a perpetual calendar, I'll spend literally weeks and weeks and weeks just drawing geometry, model any parts. I'll just do geometry because the geometry is the underlying proof, if you like, of how the whole thing works, how the levers interact with each other, how the wheels, everything, how everything goes is all geometry. Ultimately, it's geometry. Every lever has a pivoting point. You draw everything out just in literally sketches and lines. Once everything starts to come together geometrically, then you can start to actually model some components and see what the parts might look like. But the very first thing is just literally thousands of lines and circles and arcs and stuff, you know. So as you flesh that out, you start to think, okay, well, there could be something there, there could be something there. Have I not thought of something here? And there's always this possibility of a gremlin lurking, which is going to derail the whole process. But the, 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 the process advances like that. And then you start to have some parts and it starts to look like something. And then it even starts to look a bit like a watch. Uh, and if the, if the thing is right, if the each part as it goes along, I always get the feeling that, um, I feel that if I've done it right in terms of your question about the creative process, if, if I've got what I'm looking for, it always feels as though the part of where it was, the part of whatever it is, it already existed. It's like it's hidden in, it's hidden under sand, and what I'm doing is I'm pouring the sand away, and the, the first wee corner appears above the sand, and then I pour a bit more away, and gradually you see more emerge. And if I've done it right, I'll, I'm always looking for this kind of gut punch feeling, like, you know, like, that's what I'm looking for, you know? I'm always looking for this kind of visceral reaction, you know? And and if I get that, then I'm happy that that's, what, that's how that spring is supposed to look, or this lever, or whatever, you know? Um, it's, it should be a feeling. It's like any good idea. It should be like, once you see it, it should be like, well, it's so obvious. It, it always existed. I'm looking for that, exactly that feeling. It should look as though it always existed. Yeah. And is it a great relief to find those solutions when you're working on something and, and you're stuck or you're hung up on it? Or does it feel a bit like, um, uh, like you were just saying, like, oh, this is so obvious. Like, why didn't I see this from, from the beginning? Uh, no, it's agony. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. No, because again, you see the the um, it's the it's the nature of trying to work with you know, all those all those um, all those watches have got you know they're completely new mechanisms. You know, so the, the like the the perpetual calendar is all patented, and the sequential chronograph has got like five patents and stuff. And because you're really in the in the realms of sort of untried stuff uh even the very the best computer modeling is it's extremely useful of course and there's an awful lot you can see but ultimately you can't really be sure it's going to work until you get to try it and that, and that means build the prototype and it's a hugely long process i mean for, for me to just for me to do the, the, to give you an idea to design if we design the perpetual calendar i mean i mean the entire watch not just the perpetual calendar mechanism but the entire watch i have to get to the point that really i've designed the entire watch before we can start to prototype stuff and in, in order to prototype stuff, that's the thing which is done in partnership with MBNF. If I was to make the entire, the, every single component of that watch here in my workshop, it would take me about five years. So I can't make everything. It's just not possible. I make all the really dangerous bits, the bits that we're pretty sure are, are going to have a, are not going to work first time around. So we, we have a sort of a, we have a sort of a triage hedging your bets sort of system. So, uh, once the watch is fully designed, uh, we will choose the parts which are high risk, medium risk, and low risk. All the low risk bits, things like the screws, things like main gear train, and all that sort of stuff. You, we, we can be confident those are going to work. So MBNF will straight away order those in reasonable quantities, uh, and in the hope that the overall watch 
does work in the end, and they can actually launch it as some sort of a some sort of a product onto the market. So we will the, because obviously the whole point is that the more you order, the less expensive it's going to be because there's huge economies of scale when you're trying to get components supplied. So we'd rather rather than order one screw, we'd much rather order five thousand screws, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so we try to work out high risk and low, high, medium, and low risk components, and straight away order more significant quantities of the low risk components and a few of the medium risk and the high risk stuff I make here myself. So it takes a lot longer, but there's no point ordering all these springs and levers if we're 90% sure they're all going to end up in the bin because stuff like springs, for example, you always have to tweak the springs, change the thickness, alter the heights. You know, there's a lot to do in things like springs. So I make all those parts here myself. So along this probe, the point is you can't get to the point where you can order those parts and be ready to go with the prototyping. You must, first of all, complete the entire design of the entire watch. You can't just design a bit of it and say, okay, well, we'll get make, make some bits. In order to have this assessment of high, medium, and low risk, you have to have everything clear. So that means I've got to design the entire watch, everything, all of the, all of the basic movement, all of the screws. The whole thing is completely finished. All the bevels are in place. All the decorations have been decided. And then I have to do all the technical plans. So that means every single component has got its own fully, fully, fully spec'd out and fully tolerance a technical plan, which allows the supplier or whoever it is to make that component. So that is a huge amount of work. And I'm just here in my little organ organization working by myself. There's nobody else here except me, you know, so it, you know, to, to do the complete design from start to finish of a, of a, Highly complicated watch. The perpetual calendar is like 582 components. Uh, the sequential chronograph, something similar, 585 maybe. You know, it's it's around. If I do nothing else but that, it's about two years of work just to get the design fully done with the. And I've done all the technical plans, and I've delivered the complete dossier to MBNF. And at that moment, not before, can we then start to even think about the prototyping. And then for the prototyping, we decide which components are they going to order, which components am I going to make, and then the process continues. You see, so you're talking, you're talking really in years here, you know, because I don't have a team. I'm not, I don't have a bunch of people working here with me, and I can put these people on this project, and somebody else is working on this project. It's just me. I could never. My level of anxiety is so out of control that I just couldn't have other people working for me. I would drive them mad. Um, because I would never be satisfied with what they're doing and, and they would drive me mad because, you know, I would just be, I would torment them all the time. So it's just me here and uh, I can't compress my time anymore because I'm already working far too much. So it, it, this is how long it takes for one person to, to, to design a watch like that from start to finish and then do all the technical plans, deliver all those to MBNF. And then they, the machinery then with MBNF, then they kick in. And then they order, or they get all the parts. They, you know, the 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 the, um, the supply of all the parts comes in, and then I make my my prototyping parts, and then we come together again and start to build the prototype. And only then, to answer your question, we're now two two, we're now more than like maybe two and a half years into the project. So I've been on eggshells for two and a half years, and only now, after two and a half years, do I finally get to build the prototype and see if the flipping thing works or not. <laughs> Do you see? When you are working on the technical dossier and building all of the planning and the parts and sort of the, the build dossier, do you enjoy the prototyping of those parts, of those high-risk parts? Like, Do you enjoy the, the fabrication side as much as you enjoy the deeply technical thinking and development side? 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, I do because I'm I'm uh, I, in my heart, you know, my background is really watchmaking, and as I say, what I mean is the actual working with the bits of metal, you know, the the actual the mechanisms themselves, manipulating them, making the parts, putting them together, all that sort of stuff. You know, that's where that's the world I'm from. So I kind of ended up in this design business, designing parts sort of again by accident, you know. But really, in my heart, I still feel like I'm sort of a watchmaker. So the more I, the more that I do, I, I'm very busy with design now. But um, when I, I do a lot of design, but I really enjoy getting back to the actual, the the actual physical in the metal bit of the watchmaking, you know. So when I'm at the prototyping and all that, I, I love all that, you know. And I've got all the machines whirring, and um, you know, I, that's really my, I'm in my element at that. But nonetheless, the other, the flip side of that is that it is also very stressful because you know. If I find that it's not, it's at that point that I find out if if it's working or not, and if it's not working, then it, you know it really is a because I am um, I don't have a very good sense of perspective in my life, so I I that I, I it consumes me to such an extent that I uh, find it very hard to really um, keep you know to 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 not get in such a huge panic about stuff when things aren't going the way I, when things aren't working the way I want them to, you know, I, I, it's just not, it's just not a, it's not just a job that I do and that, you know, if it works, that's fine. I, I take it also personally, that it's, it's very difficult to really, as I say, keep a sense of emotional and psychological perspective on what is effectively just a mechanical watch. Nobody's life is at stake, you know, but I, I'm, my reaction to it is, disproportionate and entirely out of all proportion yeah and and i think that that's something that um i'm i'm happy you said that because i want people to understand how much this this means to you and how important this work is to you because when we were talking before this and in emails we've exchanged and in conversations we've had before we've talked about how how challenging this work is and i think that's something that everyone can relate to because Many people love what they do, but there are also times when it's immensely stressful and terrible and it consumes you and it's, it's all consuming. Um, and then you get through that and sometimes there's relief there and sometimes there's not. And sometimes it's just like, okay, well, you've gotten through this thing now back to the normal day to day. And it's, it's relatable for everyone because it's hard to do, uh, when you go through these extremely emotionally trying periods. In periods where you're trying something that has never been done before and you don't know if it's going to work or not. But, you know, I'm, I'm really happy to hear you say that because I, I think it's relatable to everyone. And you have to understand as well, you know, as, as I say, the, the, the two, let's say the two to two and a half years, you know, where like MBNF, everybody, it's a, the whole thing's a, the whole thing's a punt, the whole thing's a gamble. You know, we could, and then this is what happened. This is why both of those watches were so horrendous in their own way is that we got to the point of actually building the prototype. And for totally different reasons, for both watches, they're, they're, it's, they're entirely different stories, what went wrong. But in both those cases, we built the prototype and it didn't work at all. You know, And so think about how much time I've invested. Think how much money MBNF have invested in the project. And the whole thing is really on my shoulders. Because it's just again back to the point that it's just me here. There's nobody else here. I don't. I'm in effort great in that they support me, but I'm not. I don't. I'm not. Um. You know, I work here alone in Belfast. I'm not. I'm not part of. The, I'm. I'm with them, but I'm not part of their company. So I take total responsibility for what I do and for the thing ultimately working. So and I take that responsibility very, very, very seriously. Todd. 
so it's so it's a huge amount of time to wait to, to be in agony to find out if a thing's going to work. But then, if you get reach that point and you build a pro, you build a prototype and find that it doesn't work, and in both those cases, it didn't <laughs> didn't work. You know, this this really is the this really is the the worst case scenario. And it's it's very hard to sort of it's very hard to describe unless you've been through it. But um, it's it's really the ultimate torment. You know, you hit that sort of um, failure point. What's the process then of backtracking to find what the the problem is, or or how do you go back and and say like, okay, well, this isn't working the way we anticipated. How do you break down a movement then? To figure out where the disconnect is. Okay. Well, the the the, the answer to that, the, the two projects are entirely different. So, if I answer that in terms of the perpetual calendar, is that what you? Yeah, yeah? that's like perfect. Yeah, that that's great. Um, a so live perpet- example would be amazing. The perpetual calendar had um, the, uh, right from right from the early days of designing the, the the first few months. Let's say even the first two months of beginning the design actually properly on CAD. I, uh, I was aware that there was a, there was a, if you like, a, 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 there was a, a, a absolutely key pivotal area. And that was, a, it was to do with the way they, it was to do with the way the, the, um, the multi-layered wheel, the mechanical processor programs itself, uh, on the 25th of each month. So there's a, a, a specific thing happens on the 25th at midnight and the, the, the system is programmed and then it programs itself for the present month. And then after that, the month and year correctors switch themselves off, so you can no longer mess with it after the twenty fifth. So the, obviously, the thing has to program itself correctly. I was worried that I could see that there was a weakness in what I designed, and that I wasn't sure would it do that. So there's a lever. There's a lever which communicates with the month cam. The lever comes to rest in the right place, but for the programming of the multi layered wheel to be correct, there's a pin inside that wheel which which controls those moving segments. The lever stops in the right place, but the, the program is only right if the pin is touching the leaning against the lever. And the problem is, and this is why the computer modeling is so limited, this instance happens very fast. It's a violent action. It happens with a, with a bang. So whenever you go to the 25th, the lever's released. The lever flies down at high speed, bangs into this pin. The lever stops in the right place, but the pin is free to sail off and jump around and do whatever it likes because the pin is free. The lever stops here, but the programming is only right if the pin is leaning against the lever whenever this happens. If the pin finishes up somewhere over here, the programming's wrong. And, and, um, and I had, what I'd done is I'd put in these braking levers and a spring, like a, an inertia spring, which, which would, I had thought would work well, but act like a brake. So whenever they, whenever the thing, whenever the lever flies in and whacks the pin and moves it sideways, the pin will always be, it'll be slowed down. It'll have a braking effect due to other, other things. And I, I had thought, well, that ought to do it. I was so, I worried about this. I worried about this for over a year. Every single day for over a year, I knew that this was a weakness because if this doesn't work, there's the, the whole thing's useless. Yeah. And I don't just mean we can work around it. I couldn't find a way to work around it. I tried for over a year. What I wanted was a fail-safe solution rather than use braking springs and stuff like that. I wanted a way which would mean that the pin couldn't be anywhere else but leaning against the lever. I wanted to make it hundred like a like a brick wall solution, you know, rather than a spring. I wanted to find this brick wall solution, and I couldn't find it. Uh, I made friends with a guy who is actually the um, there's, a huge, there's a huge textbook if you study watchmaking, if you study construction, if you go to university in Switzerland, you study watch construction, which is the design stuff. 
this, there's a huge textbook, and he's one of the guys who wrote the book, and I became friends with him. I made contact with him, and I said, look, you've never met me before, but as you, he was a semi-retired teacher then, and I said, look, would you look at this pro- problem for me and see what you think? And I, he and I became friends. Very nice chap. I explained it all to him. He went away and analyzed it, and he said, actually, in terms of the brick wall solution, he said, he said that because of the contra-rotating nature of these components, it, that can't really exist. He said, you're not going to get that. But he did say that the spring and everything I put in, he thought, he thought that all looks plausible and that should work fine. You know, but I always have this question mark. What's going to happen here? What's going to happen? Because of the, it's, it's a dynamic modeling problem. You can only find out what it's going to do when everything's moving at high speed. You have this very high speed impact collision. You can't model that with a computer, really. So we built it. And of course, it didn't work at all. It was an absolute disaster. It didn't, a spring didn't work, a braking didn't work, nothing worked, you know? And I had no workaround. And this guy had told me, there can't be the, the brick wall solution you're looking for. And, um, you know, it was, a, it really was a disaster. And I had this awful feeling. I rang, so I rang MBNF and I was on, I was literally in tears. And I told them, look, it doesn't work. I, and I can't make it work. It doesn't work, you know? And, um, and uh, I, uh, uh, Sarah said, Sarah said, okay, calm down. Sarah was sort of like, calm down, calm down. This was like a Wednesday or Thursday. I tried all sorts of things. I'd remade the spring three or four times, different thicknesses, nothing worked. And he said, look, calm down. He said, let's think it over for a few days and we'll talk again next week. And then I, this was maybe like a Thursday or Friday. I went drinking all weekend and then I was sitting here in the workshop right in the seat where I'm talking to you now. And I was sort of a bit hungover on Monday morning. And um, the solution just dropped out of the sky into my head. And I had it redesigned in about three hours. I had redesigned by lunchtime. And uh, and then we, and it was only really a small modification. It was a, a new opening in the wheel and an extension to the to the month follower lever. So what it did was it, it, it was a, another pin, an additional pin, which comes up elsewhere on the wheel. And this lever, catches the oncoming pin and effectively the pin is then sandwiched between the two levers so it can't move it can it ends up jammed between the two levers and, and I, I, I and I, it worked it worked perfectly it worked from the very first we had to get that part made but from the very first time I tried it it worked perfectly but you know I, I, so I'm delighted with the outcome but I mean it was it was um, it was like being trapped in hell yeah yeah the turmoil of just actually making the thing work because you can't see it work statically and not the not knowing probably is the most anxiety provoking part of the entire endeavor. And you just can't be sure until you actually get to try it. So with each of these, when I have each of these experiences told that goes badly, okay, I have my, the watches have worked out well, but with each experience sort of, um, with each difficult emotional experience, I become more and more, it, it undermines more and more my sort of confidence, you know, so I'm, I'm just I'm more and more um, nervous and, uh, you know, uh, very wracked with self-doubt with all these things, you know. Does it make you want to do something different? Like, does it make you want to focus on time only or, or clocks or, or go into something else? Yeah, I'd love to be, I'd love to be a bus driver or a postman. <laughs> so I, I had heard from a mutual friend that at one point uh, you were considering being a lorry driver and there was, uh, I think, a, I think farmer or gardener was thrown out there as well. Uh, lorry driver, cool, yeah. 
I was speaking about Luca. Uh, oh, Luca! Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, there, yeah, was, yeah, yeah. there was a point where you called him and said, "I'm thinking about being a lorry driver." You're obviously keeping going. So, what? I know we can't talk about future projects, but is watchmaking just so in your blood that it's sort of fixates your mind that you have to do it? Yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, I always say I'm sort of driven by forces that I can neither control or understand. That's how it feels. I mean, even if I wasn't, um, I think even if I wasn't doing watchmaking professionally, I would still, I would still have to do it privately. You know, it's, it's like an addiction, really. That's how it feels. But with all the negative connotations of an addiction, and that you know, I, I, I don't know. I, as I said to you before, I can't I feel like I can't live with it yet. I can't live without it. You know, but it doesn't bring me, it doesn't bring me joy or pleasure at all. I don't get immense satisfaction from it. You know, it's just like a, I don't know, it's like it, it, it relieves a, a craving. <laughs> Maybe that's what, it, that's what I get from it. You know, it's not a, I don't, I don't get a wonderful glowing feeling of, you know, oh, this is fantastic. I, I, it's not that at all. But, but why do I keep going with it? I don't know because I'm, uh, it's very hard to imagine that I don't have watchmaking in my in my life. I don't know what that would look like. I don't. I don't. I don't know. Do you take a break between projects, or do you go straight from one one project into the next project? Pretty straight. Pretty straight. Yeah, because I, I you know, I'm sort of again. I'm well. Yeah. 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 Um, there was a sort of a there was a I would I would organize it in such a way that there might be a bit of a lull in that I'm not straight away into conceiving the next one you know back to back but because there's always a lot of sort of follow-up work on to, to to the back end of the previous project there'd be a lot of sort of follow-up follow-up work because we do we do like different versions of the watch and there might be some some new things that are you know that some variants maybe you know that sort of stuff so i would do a lot of that sort of work which is which is really interesting but it's it's not the super high risk stuff you know before launching into the launching into the next one but meanwhile of course while i'm doing that that not quite so high risk stuff. I'll already be thinking about what's going to come next, you know. So I already started working and you went in my head long before, as I explained earlier, long before I actually sit down and start to work on it. So there's a, I suppose it's a, it's not a break, but it's more of a lull, I, I suppose, you know. But I, I do feel as if I need, I'd like six months holiday, <laughs> definitely. So I kind of want to come back to your, your workshop, your one man workshop and how did you get all of your your sort of tools, your bench, everything back from Switzerland to Northern Ireland? And did you find a workshop or do you work at home? I'm sort of curious about how your workshop came together. Uh, well, yeah, when I was when I was still uh, when I was still at Wallstep, as I said, I worked and I did lots of moonlighting, you know. So I would work for a year and then buy one piece of equipment and then another, but the next year, you know. So and gradually, I accumulated all the bits and pieces that I have here, you know. Um, the whole aim is to be in the sense that I'm able to make uh, pretty much any component that I need for watches. You know, I don't, I don't, I, I wanted to be totally not reliant on any sort of supplier. So again, that's why to come back to the prototyping thing, that's why I can do all that sort of stuff here. Because if you say we're again on the, the high, on the high, medium, and low risk components, there's there's lots of components that MBNF they might wait a year to get. There's they might wait eight months. There's a there's very long lead times in components. You know, depending on the suppliers. 
So if I'm in the middle of my prototype and I realize, okay, suddenly, as I did multiple times, for each of those projects, I've got a scrap box behind me on the bench. It's like the graveyard box, I always call it. It's all the stuff that didn't, all the bits that weren't right, you know, and I, that can run into maybe nearly a hundred components that are all yeah. just scrap. Yeah. So if I have to, if I need a spring and I realize, okay, I need the spring to be five hundredths of a millimeter thicker than I originally designed it. If I have to wait, I don't know, 11 weeks to get the spring back from Switzerland. That's no good. Only to try it and realize, actually, yeah, it's still, I still need to make it 500 thicker. Again, another 11 weeks, it doesn't work. So here I have everything I need. I can make all the components um, in the workshops. That means if I need a new spring, I can redesign the spring in the morning, run it on the machine, and have it by lunchtime the same day, you know. But I don't have anything, I don't have any capacity in terms of production. So if it takes me, four hours to make that spring, it'll take me 40 hours to make 10 springs. I have no economy of scale at all because I've got all, all manual machines. But it means I can be extremely reactive, particularly in the prototype. So I have everything I need here to do and pretty much any component you like. And that was the aim, was to reach that point. So now that you know, I'm, I'm free from the need to operate with any supplier, that was the whole plan. Um, so yeah, I had to accumulate all this equipment that I have here, you know, and uh, yeah, getting home was tricky because I it, we just we just got a. I, I remember we with my wife we got like a, a a moving like an international moving company and we they came and they visited and they looked around and they gave us a quote for like something totally astronomical like thirty thousand pounds you know <laughs> to move all the stuff home and I thought it was just not possible you know so anyway we asked a we asked a company here in Belfast could they do it and they were like well yeah we've never really done anything like that before but yeah they they said they could do it. So I, I wasn't really sure they could do it, but they said they could do it. And they arrived with a big lorry and they, um, you know, cost a fraction, cost of, I don't know, far, far, far less than that. And they came and I have to say the guys were absolutely brilliant. And there's, you know, they brought all the stuff arrived here in Belfast and there wasn't a single solitary scratch on any piece of equipment in the entire workshop. Nothing. It was amazing. I don't know how they did it. I wouldn't like to do it again, but it, you know, touch wood on that on that occasion. I was lucky, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any um, any desire to to sort of be an independent? Well, you know, what you might think of as an independent watchmaker, somebody who's making watches and putting your name on the dial, start to finish. I, I don't know. I, I just I find that hard to answer. Again, I think it's because I'm um, I, I struggle a great deal with anxiety, is the honest truth, you know, and. Um, Max and Sarah think that's part of the reason I'm good at what I do, maybe. Um, uh, but I, I suppose it's, as I say, to, to come back to what you said right at the start, yeah, you're right. My interest is in the really deeply technical side of stuff, you know. So the, the advantage of the arrangement that I, how I operate at the minute is that um, because I don't, I, I'm not doing anything really for myself, I'm, I'm left alone here. Nobody bothers me. I'm here in the workshop all the time and I get to develop all the stuff and I make the parts and I do everything. And um, you know that's what I really enjoy. Whereas if I was more, if I was more commercially involved, then I would inevitably spend a lot more time, you know, chasing clients. And you know, if you talk, I'm sure if you talk to any of the independents who are like independent brands, they spend a great deal of time traveling and going to see people, and you know, all sorts of stuff with collectors and events, and going to all the big events, the big fairs, and so on. I, I don't really do any of that. I, I you know, I, I, like we, you, you and I met in Geneva a few weeks ago, but that's, as I think I explained to you at the time, for me, that's extremely rare that I'm ever at any events like that. Like I'm, I'm hardly ever, at, you know, I just, I don't really do things like that at all. So it was for the fact that we met was a stroke of luck. 
you know, but generally speaking, I tend to, I, I suppose I'm quite private and I keep myself hidden away here. So they, I suppose that's, that's part of what suits me about working with and the sort of development work that I do at the minute. I'm left alone to do that. And I'm not saying it, it won't happen, but I certainly have to think very carefully about, about becoming more, I suppose, commercially involved and doing something under my own name. I, I just, that would be a big step. And I, I just don't know. I don't know about that. Yeah. Fair. Stephen, I want to be uh, respectful of your time. We've taken taken a bit of it this morning, but I would love to kind of end with with two questions. Um, the first one is: I'd love to hear about your love of clocks. I know clocks were were always of interest to you, but one of the things we spoke about at uh, in Geneva were Harrison's marine chronometers. I'd love to hear just your take on on Harrison's marine chronometers and what you would love to see, you know, if you would ever love to to make a clock of of your own. So I, I think I'm a huge Harrison fan, you know. I'm a, I just think those clocks are they, I think they are uh, the most uh, extraordinarily overwhelming, emotional, mind-blowing horological artifacts anywhere. I, I just think that is, they are at, that is the shit right there, is Harrison's clocks and the, the three clocks on the watch, obviously, you know. So I was... Just after, yeah, so you and I spoke in Geneva. I had been traveling over Geneva a couple of days before. I had got stuck in, because my flight, I had to fly through London because there's no direct flights from Belfast to Geneva. So I got stuck in London. My flight was canceled in Geneva. I ended up spending two nights in London. And I stayed with a friend. And uh, on the Saturday, I I took a, I, I went to Greenwich to see, the, to see Harrison's clocks, which I'd been there many times before. You know, it was not the first visit. I've been many times. I've still got my, I think I've still got my, uh, like, there's my ticket to look at them. <laughs> there you go. That's amazing. So right, yeah. So I, I went. I spent. Um, so that was. I did that on Saturday. I got that. I got there about twelve o'clock midday. And you know, the Greenwich Observatory is incredible. If anybody goes and visits, it's incredible. They've all this incredible paraphernalia from the from the uh, the era of um, whenever you know Greenwich obviously has the, the prime meridian of the world. You know, there it's an extremely historic and interesting place. They have all the old telescopes and all that sort of stuff. It's a super cool place to look around. But I got there about twelve o'clock, and I had to look round. And the room where they have all the clocks, the clocks are in the centre of the room. And I looked all around the edge of the room first to all this other information, you know. And I, because I knew the clocks are there, and I've seen them so many times before. And I sort of was building myself up to get to look at the clocks, you know, so emotional. And then I turned around and started to look at the first one, you know. And, and I mean, there's. there's it's, it's incredible. All the people come and go and look. And I was, I was, um, you know, I just spent ages looking at the clocks, one, two, three, and then eventually I'm standing in front of the watch. And honest to God, the tears are running down my face. You know, they're the most, they're most sublime objects. So I was in that room with the clocks for like six hours. I got there at midday and I was the last person to leave and they kicked me out when the museum closed at six o'clock. You know, I was just in the all day long, just with the, just looking at them. And I've been there many times before, and there's always the, the the nature of their wonder is that there's always some new detail or something you haven't spotted before or something you because you're because the cool thing about the museum is they have the three clocks all operating, you know, they're all running, so you can actually see them running. They're not just static. The watch is static; it doesn't run because it requires oil, so they can't run it. But the three clocks don't require any oil because Harris was so clever. They have them all running so you can watch what they're doing, and particularly two and three, you can see how the remontoirs wind every, I think one of them's every what, four minutes and the, the three is every minute or something. Um, there's so much detail in how he did the compensation mechanisms and with the, with the bimetallic whole system, you know, 
it's just incredible if you think about the stuff that he invented. What I love about Harrison is that what he did was completely groundbreaking. He wasn't just somebody doing good clocks. He was literally light years ahead of everything else which was going on in his era. And he did all that. Like, it's hard enough doing it today. We've got all these modern machine tools and we've got all this stuff. Harrison had no electricity. He had no modern machine tools. He had no high-quality optics. He had no electric light. And the guy was completely self-taught. He was a carpenter, you know. And he came up with these things which were literally... There's no, there is, to this day, there's no comparison to what he did in the era that he did it. He invented the bimetallic strip. He invented the ball bearing. I mean, imagine that every machine, every motorbike, car, engine, whatever you name it, is stuffed full of ball bearings, right? And he was the, he was the, he invented that just to make his clocks run with less friction. It's absolutely brilliant. It's the most incredible story. And, um, I'm just, I'm overwhelmed by it. And every time I go there, I'm, equally overwhelmed again i just think it's it's the most interesting thing ever harrison's the man does it ever make you want to build a clock of your own yeah well i'm very interested in clocks as you say but clocks would only be a sort of a clocks would be a private interest you know that's something i not 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 for not to do for other people but i'm really i'm also really interested in to have these clocks here look you look over here and i'm going to show you see up in the wall there yeah yeah, so I have all these, I have all these master clocks. I'm really interested in master clocks. So, um, master clocks are clocks which you don't get anymore, but, um, imagine the era before men's electricity or quartz. So I'm talking like sort of the early 19th century. Master clock for prevalent from the early 19th century until the arrival of quartz in the 70s. So imagine you've got a, you've got a big building or complex of buildings like a school or a factory. You have all these different rooms. So imagine it's a school and you need to know all the, the time in all the different classrooms. So if you have a mechanical clock on each wall, you have to wind them up and people forget and they all go at different speeds, you know. So that's no good. So you have a master clock system. So you have one very, very accurate clock in the, in the, in the school office and it communicates with all the slave clocks in all the different classrooms. So the slave clocks have no autonomy at all. They're just, they, they receive an electrical pulse in a big loop of wires from the master clock every 30 seconds. So they don't know what the time is. They just jump forward whenever the master clock says jump. So the master clock itself is an incredibly accurate and beautiful, highly engineered, but extremely modest piece of equipment, you see. Um, there were great pioneers in England, companies like Synchrono, and um, there's a bunch of about four or five, uh, you know, uh, real experts in this stuff, you know. And um, I'm, a, I'm obsessed with master clocks, totally obsessed with master clocks. I'm not so interested in the slave clocks, but they, what I love about the master clocks is that they're so accurate, like in-bar pendulums, all this kind of stuff. I have a huge collection. I've got about 11, although only five are working. I've got three more in the kitchen. And that's the clunk that you can hear every 30 seconds. I don't know if you can hear there's a noise, but that's the master clocks resetting every 30 seconds. So it's, it's an electromechanical clock, which is highly accurate. And I can, mine run to within one or two seconds a month. They're incredibly accurate, you know, they're really brilliant. Um, but what is so cool about that is that the synchronome company in England who was doing these clocks, they also did a thing called the, 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 the short free pendulum clock. And the master clock is very accurate and very interesting, but they wanted to, this is, this is in the era whenever they, uh, this again, the 1930s, 40s, 50s, this kind of thing. They're trying to get the most accurate clocks on the planet for really hyper precision timekeeping. So the problem with any pendulum clock is that it's interfered with by its escapement or by the mechanism it uses to advance the, the, the mechanical parts. So a, a master clock is really very good because it, it's free for 29 seconds out of, the, out of the month, but it still gets influenced by the main escapement. It still gets impulse rather. 
So the free pendulum clock is a double clock. It's one pendulum in a vacuum, and it's a, a master clock which functions as, like a slave clock, and the two of them are linked together with a, with a feedback loop. It's incredibly clever. So the problem with a normal pendulum is a normal pendulum will change its rate in terms of uh, temperature, air pressure, air viscosity, air buoyancy. All these things have an effect on the pendulum. So the very accurate pendulum is inside an evacuated cylinder at a constant temperature. And, uh, but it can't tell the time because it's just a pendulum. So what allows the system to tell the time is linking the, the evacuated pendulum with a, with a master clock, which functions like a slave clock. The two work together and, and the, 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 the slave clock uh, triggers when the master clock should be impulsed, all this sort of stuff. Anyway, the point is short, uh, uh, Synchronome came up with this system along with a guy called William Hamilton Short, who was a railway engineer who lived in his mom's house and he designed all the watches, the clocks in his bedroom. And he's an unbelievably clever chap, and he's almost unknown. And these clocks were so accurate that from, say, the 1920s until the 1970s, every major observatory on Earth had a short synchronome free pendulum clock. They made about 70 or 80 of them in total, um, and they're now highly collectible. I wish I had one. I don't. And um, they were so they were so precise. They were the most accurate clocks on Earth for all that time until quartz came along. And only in the arrival of quartz could anybody measure how accurate they had been. And, but the, the clocks were such that if they kept, a, a, whenever they compared with quartz and kept a record of their rate, the clocks would fluctuate very, very slightly in terms of the rate. And the fluctuation was caused by the moon, by the tides, because the moon very slightly affects the Earth's gravitational field. And the clocks were so accurate that they, the clocks were, they were able to pick up the tiny changes in the Earth's gravitational field. That's how accurate they were. What about that? So what I would want to do, the answer to your question is, I would love to build a fully mechanical. I'd love to build a fully mechanical version of a of a free pendulum clock with a feed, so effectively two clocks which feed back one with the other. I'm very interested in that. That's my little retirement project. Well, I hope you. I hope you do. I know it will be amazing, and I think you probably will because it's already in your brain. I, I can tell that you're already uh, you're already designing it in there. Well, something's cooking, Todd. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen, it's been it's been such a pleasure talking with you, and I'm so glad we had a, a rather chance encounter in Geneva to to get to know each other and to get to talk. I'd love to ask you one last question, um, and and I'd just like to know what you wish that collectors and people in the watch industry knew about watchmaking. I always say the same thing. My interest is so very technical. You know, my interest is in the technical side of stuff. I don't. I don't, I'm not a watch collector. I don't know any collection. Of, I mean, I love watches, but I don't collect watches. I don't really wear a watch, except very occasionally. So I, you know, my interest is in, my intense interest is really in what's inside watches, how they work, how their mechanisms are designed. I'm interested in all the machinery that is required to create the parts. And that, that's really what, what, um, what obsesses me. I think that, as a result of that, I do all this design work, and, I, and as explained, the projects can be very arduous and very stressful, and uh, I struggle a lot with that. And I suppose, you know, I suppose just because it just it, it's great, of course, they, 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 we, people like me are allowed to do what I do because there are interested collectors out there who really like watches and who also, importantly, it has to be said, they have the means to buy these highly expensive luxury objects, you know, and without those people, I wouldn't, we wouldn't be having this conversation. You know, I wouldn't exist. You wouldn't be doing what you do. You know, it, it, not, none of this would happen. And it's very interesting. The field of collecting is very interesting. You know more about this than I do. 
But um, there are great people who have who collectors who are really passionate about finding out about the watches that they want to buy, and they have great technical knowledge. And of course, like everything, there's a spectrum. But I suppose what sometimes I've come across people who obviously ha- clearly have the means and have absolutely no notion about what the watch is, how it works, who designed it, what went into creating it. It's simply an object, and I feel sometimes it's almost too easy to. You know, just just because you can, just because you have the means to buy it, I think it's almost it's not enough of a reason that you should have the right to get one. You know, you should. <laughs> I, I think it's because because for me it's so personal and emotional. I think that um, I think I would like people to understand better about what goes into creating something, which in in in, in some cases people take entirely for granted. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the the most interesting aspects for me from the collecting side um, and from what I do from the journalism side is being able to help educate people about what uh, goes into these watches. And, you know, just just like this conversation, the different ways to be an independent watchmaker and the different ways to work independently within the industry and how the industry really comes together to create watches, because it's it's not a uh, sole individual effort. There is a lot of team effort. There's a lot of collaboration that occurs. And it, um, you know, I I think you're absolutely right. It takes a lot to make a watch. And if people uh, spend some time studying that and understanding that, I think the level of appreciation that you have when you have that technical, a little, even a little bit of that technical knowledge makes your appreciation of the watches and the people so much deeper. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you're right. And you'll, you know, you feel a person who owns the watch, you know, you'll ultimately, you'll, it's, it's about love. It's really about love. It's about feeling the person who owns the watch and has it. It's about them feeling some of the love and care that's gone into it in the first place. And if you're the collector, if you, if you don't have that, then, you know, you're, 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 you're not, you're not getting you, you, from the thing that you have this thing. It ought to, that's why people own watches or own art, whatever it is, it's, some, it's an object which you have in your life, which enriches your life in some way, you know, and therefore the more you understand and appreciate the object, be it a watch, be it a painting, be it, you know, whatever, a fantastic classic car, the more you understand about what's behind it, ultimately the more joy you're going to take from having the thing in your life. If you know nothing about it, just the fact that you've had the means to buy it and it's sitting there, it's, it doesn't bring you anything. So the more you appreciate about it, the more love is transmitted through the object to the person who, who gets to enjoy it. You know, so I think there's a, you know, there's a, there's a two way benefit. There's a benefit from, from me, from my side that, that I feel that people maybe appreciate more all that goes into it from my side. But there's a benefit also for the person who, who, who's the collector because they, you know, they're, they, they, the, the joy and benefit that they get from having the thing in their life is, is, is increased by a better understanding of what is, what's going on in this. You know, that, that, that's the difficulty with watches. It's a small object, you know, so it looks very dense. So it's hard for maybe the person to, uh, I think there's often a fear with watchmaking that people think, well, you know, it's so small and compact and there's so much going on in there that, you know, I'm not even going to try to understand it. But really, it's just mechanics and miniature. You know, there's if you sit down and really look into it, you can understand what's going on. And I think that's to everybody's benefit that people, you know, I, I'd love to, I'd love people to, have more understanding of what's going on inside and why it's like that and what went into it. Absolutely. Yeah. Stephen McDonald, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you like like every one of our conversations is. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I look forward to doing this again with you and thank you for just being yourself and for everything you've done for the industry. You are an incredible 
incredible force and I just want to recognize you for the things that you've created. And I, I really do think you will be, uh, your name should be known alongside Harrison, alongside Breguet, alongside the great master watchmakers. And I think you will be there. So thank you for your time today. Well, Todd, thanks very much for having me. It's been a pleasure to speak to you and um, we'll speak again. Absolutely, Stephen. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon. Good night. Thank you. Bye.